Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, May 9th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The UK's King Charles III is crowned in a historic ceremony. The Arab League readmits Syria following a 12-year suspension. Eight are killed in a Texas mall shooting. Anthony Blinken is threatened with contempt of Congress over classified Afghanistan cables. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia discuss Yemen peace efforts. Conservatives in Chile win a majority to draft a new constitution. Russia steps up attacks on Ukraine ahead of Victory Day. The EU proposes sanctions on Chinese firms for allegedly helping Russia. At least 22 are dead after a tourist boat capsizes in India. And over 100 wildfires in Canada displace thousands. In our top story, King Charles III is crowned in a historic ceremony. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Telegraph, Independent, BBC News, Fox News, and 538. Britain's King Charles III and his consort, Queen Camilla, were coronated on Saturday in a grand ceremony at Westminster Abbey in London, where royal fans crowded all the viewing areas along the 1.3-mile procession route. Officially described as a solemn religious service, the coronation lasted for around two hours after starting at 11 a.m. local time, with the king and queen consort returning to Buckingham Palace shortly after. 2,000 guests took part in the ceremony presided over by the Archbishop of Canterbury, including royals, celebrities, politicians, and foreign leaders. After months of speculation, Prince Harry attended the coronation unaccompanied by his wife Meghan Markle and their two children. This celebration wraps up months of intense planning since Charles ascended the throne of the United Kingdom and 14 other realms in September, following the death of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, who served as monarch for 70 years. The estimated cost of the crowning, mostly made up of security, has varied from around $60 million to $125 million, angering some residents amid soaring living costs. According to official projections, however, the economy would see some $1 billion in benefits from the coronation. Opinion polls conducted in April show that while 51% of adults oppose the UK government funding the celebrations, 58% of Britons support the monarchy, and 62% have a positive view of Charles. All right, thanks for that story, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from The Spectator let alone its constitutional and religious significance as an indispensable part of the installation of the new head of state, the coronation also matters because it offers a unique opportunity for Britons to celebrate their cultural inheritance and patriotism. Fully-fledged state events like this one highlight all the jewels of the British arts to the world's admiration and display the nation's pride. Time gives us the establishment critical narrative. Instead of this costly medieval parade to put a hat on the head of Charles, Britain should have an election to let the people democratically choose the head of state. This ceremony is a reminder that there is no such thing as a modern monarchy. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They say there's a 14% chance that King Charles III will abdicate the throne of the United Kingdom before September 9th of 2032. 
I think these two narratives are going to have to agree to disagree. People have been arguing about uh, should there be kings for a long time. It's, it certainly was expensive, though. $125 million for that ceremony. You know, when you're planning a wedding, the prices are higher for a wedding than the same service would be for just a regular cocktail party. I wonder yeah. if they didn't tell them it was for the uh, the coronation. It'd be a little cheaper. Shave a few bucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're just having a big barbecue, but we just need eight million, uh, you know, eight million place settings. That's all. Yeah. That's right. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org/pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. The Arab League readmits Syria after a 12-year suspension. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Le Monde, DW, Al Jazeera, The New York Times, Ahram Online, and Jordan News. The Arab League's foreign ministers meeting in Cairo on Sunday agreed to restore Syria's membership in the Pan-Arab bloc after Damascus was suspended following the civil war that broke out in the country more than a decade ago. While the unanimous decision means that Syria can resume its participation in Arab League meetings, the foreign ministers also stress their commitment to resolving the Syrian crisis and its humanitarian, security, and political implications. However, Arab League Secretary General Ahmed Abul Geet said that Syria's readmission to the pan-Arab bloc doesn't mean normalization of Arab-Syrian relations, but that restoring ties is a sovereign decision taken independently by member countries. Following Sunday's decision, which also calls for launching a Syria monitoring committee to include Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Iraq, Geet announced that Syrian President Bashar al-Assad can now attend the upcoming Arab summit in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken reaffirmed that Washington remains opposed to normalizing relations with Damascus and that a political transition in which Assad is eventually replaced in elections is the only viable solution to ending the conflict. The Arab League move comes amid recent diplomatic efforts by countries like Saudi Arabia to reintegrate Damascus into the Arab fold. Following Syria's suspension from the Arab League in 2011, after the crackdown on anti-government protests that eventually led to civil war. Scott, thank you for the update. Our first spin is an establishment-critical narrative coming from Al-Arabia. Syria's readmission to the Arab League was a long-overdue step and underscores recent efforts by regional powers to pursue their own policies, independent of the U.S., to build peace and stability. This will ultimately strengthen the region's position on the world stage. Syria's reintegration into the Arab community, rather than its exclusion, as demanded by Washington, is the surest and most effective way to overcome the Syrian crisis and humanitarian hardship. The U.S.'s failure in Syria is a victory for peace. And the pro-establishment narrative comes from Middle East Eye. The development that the Arab League is now rolling out the red carpet for the Syrian regime that bloodily crushed pro-democracy protests in 2011 and sparked a vicious civil war is deeply disappointing and ultimately only strengthens Assad and his allies. Washington will continue to advocate for Syrians' humanitarian relief and security and remain steadfast in its belief that there can be no rapprochement with Syria without credible progress toward a political settlement to the conflict. It would have been funny if Syria did the thing uh, like, I don't want to be a part of any Arab League that would have me as a member, like do the uh, Groucho Marx thing. <laughs> that would be pretty funny. It might hurt them politically, but it would be worth it for how funny right. it was. Absolutely. Disturbing news coming out of Texas as eight have been killed in a mall shooting. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, New York Times, CNN, The Guardian, and The Hindu. 
At least eight people were killed and multiple others were injured Saturday after a gunman opened fire at a crowded outlet mall near Dallas in Allen, Texas. Allen Police Chief Brian Harvey said the gunman was shot dead by a police officer who happened to be at the Allen Premium Outlets on an unrelated call. The Texas Department of Public Safety on Sunday identified the shooter as 33-year-old Mauricio Garcia, who was found with an AR-15-style weapon and at least one other weapon after he was shot. Allen Fire Chief Jonathan Boyd said at least nine people were rushed to trauma facilities. Two had died, with three in critical condition and one in fair condition. Texas Governor Greg Abbott called the shooting an unspeakable tragedy. Saturday's attack was the second deadliest U.S. shooting of the year after the January 21st massacre in California, during which a gunman killed 11 people in a ballroom. According to the Gun Violence Archive, the U.S. has suffered at least 198 mass shootings in 2023. Oh my goodness. Those are some terrible facts, Eric. Let's get to the narrative spins. The Democratic narrative comes from BBC. How many more Americans must die before stricter gun control regulations are passed? Abbott can't deflect from his role in shaping Texas's woeful gun laws and keeping guns as accessible as possible to the public. Republicans have become desensitized to mass shootings and senseless violence. Until key gun control proposals are enacted, the country will continue to lose countless innocent lives. The Republican narrative comes from Daily Caller. The best way to keep everyone safe is for law-abiding citizens to arm themselves in the event a criminal attempts a mass shooting. Unfortunately, there are many places where you're not allowed to carry or gun laws are restrictive. As the saying goes, the best way to stop a bad guy with a gun is for there to be a good guy with a gun. This will translate to a safe republic in the wake of these tragedies. And there is a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. It says that there is a 0.8% chance that the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution will be amended or repealed before the year 2025. Eric, I'm so thankful to say that I've never been directly affected by gun violence and, and no, one, no one that I know. There's two narratives here. They both have a solution. Neither one of these solutions ever gets enacted. No. I understand there's an impasse here. Let's try one. Let's do something. Do something, even if it's wrong. Yes. <laughs> Right. It's, Whatever we're doing now is not it's it. not doing That's anything. for sure. Yeah. The U.S. Congress threatens Blinken with contempt. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the Associated Press, Axios, The Star, and NBC News. U.S. House Foreign Affairs Committee Chair Representative Michael McCall, Republican of Texas, is threatening to hold U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in contempt of Congress if he refuses to hand over May 11th diplomatic cables relating to the 2021 U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Blinken was first subpoenaed in March over cables sent by U.S. diplomats who were criticizing the withdrawal plan through the so-called dissent channel, which allows diplomats to voice concerns directly with the U.S. Department of State and receive a formal response. McCall has called the information handed over thus far insufficient following several extensions of the deadline. In a letter, McCall called the measure necessary to enforce the subpoena, claiming the State Department is violating its legal obligation to produce these documents. A State Department spokesperson called the move unnecessary and unproductive, while assuring that the department will respond to appropriate oversight inquiries. A contempt of Congress charge would require a committee vote before being sent to the full House for a vote. If passed, it would serve as a referral for the Department of Justice to consider charges. The House GOP investigation into the Afghanistan withdrawal, which saw the deaths of 13 U.S. service members, has sought the release of classified documents related to the exit. 
A White House summary of the classified documents released in April acknowledged shortcomings in the evacuation while placing significant blame on the Trump administration. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Let's look at our spins. The first one is a Republican narrative coming from Fox News. The U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan was a disaster that the Biden administration bungled. Congress has a legal right to see whatever documentation it wants to see, but Blinken has missed several deadlines to turn over the requested documents. Contempt charges against Blinken would just be part of Congress fulfilling its role of holding the administration accountable. And the Democratic narrative comes from CNN. Levying contempt charges at Blinken is unnecessary. The administration and State Department are willing to continue to keep Congress informed within parameters of what is reasonable and ethical. Members of Congress have already received a classified briefing, and the White House and State have each shared more than they initially wanted to provide Congress. But releasing too many classified documents would have a dangerous and chilling effect on confidential discourse within the administration. Is is this a thing I just don't know about, or is this just a Congress thing? I feel like they spend more than they have, and then they just don't meet these deadlines. Like, he just doesn't turn in the papers by the deadlines. I get freaked out by deadlines. Like, maybe it's my public school education. I always got in trouble in school when I didn't make the deadline. (laughs) I think somebody needs to be sent to the corner. Yes, let's send Congress to the corner. Someone needs to go to the detention office. Yeah. In our next story, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia discuss Yemen peace efforts. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, France 24, Lebanese Broadcasting Corporation, and Associated Press. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman on Sunday to discuss what the White House called, quote, significant progress in Yemen peace efforts as negotiations between the kingdom and the Houthi rebels progress. Sullivan also held joint talks with Salman, UAE National Security Advisor Sheikh Tahoun bin Zayed al-Nahan, and India's National Security Advisor Ajit Doval to advance their shared vision of a more secure and prosperous Middle East region interconnected with India and the world, according to the White House. The White House statement also added that Sullivan thanked the Crown Prince for Saudi support extended to U.S. citizens escaping the fighting in Sudan, which started last month. Regarding Yemen, Sullivan highlighted the now 15-month-long truce with the Iran-aligned Houthis that has significantly calmed fighting on the ground. He also welcomed the ongoing UN-led efforts to find a peaceful resolution to the conflict, which has killed tens of thousands of people and left millions on the verge of starvation. Washington's relationship with Saudi Arabia has been strained in recent years, especially after U.S. President Biden criticized the kingdom for its human rights record and oil policies in the wake of the war in Ukraine and the increase in petroleum prices. A senior Israeli security official said on Friday that Israel was hoping for a breakthrough in efforts to normalize its ties with Saudi Arabia during Sullivan's visit there. But no mention of Israel was made in official statements. We have a pro-establishment spin from Al-Arabia. The steps being made toward peace in Yemen are a sign of real progress, and as the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have worked together to end the conflict and alleviate the suffering of the Yemeni people. Though relations between the kingdom and the Biden administration have been strained, cooperation is still occurring. With proper diplomacy, a permanent settlement can hopefully be reached in the near future by these two longtime allies. The establishment critical narrative comes from the cradle. The only role that the U.S. has played in Yemen has been enabling Saudi war crimes and obstructing the peace process. The U.S. seeks to keep the region divided and unstable, as that makes dominating it far more straightforward. Peace can be achieved in Yemen, but such peace must be made outside of U.S. hegemonic geopolitics. 
and we have a pro-China narrative from the conversation. Though there is much talk regarding Washington's role in finding a political settlement in Yemen, it might be China that ultimately holds the keys to an agreement that ends the war. Chinese diplomacy has already created a detente between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and the next step could be ending regional conflicts like the one in Yemen. The U.S. may have to step aside and let the PRC mediate the region's conflicts. And news from elections in Chile as conservatives win a majority to draft the new constitution. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, Amico Hoops, The Brazilian Report, America's Quarterly, and the Associated Press. Conservative Chilean parties won a majority of the vote in Sunday's elections to determine the members of a 50-seat constitutional council tasked with drafting a new constitution. The elections represent a strong pushback against progressive President Gabriel Boric, who took over last March. The vote for a new constitution to replace that of General Augusto Pinochet comes after 62% of Chileans voted against the left-wing proposal backed by Boric in September 2022. If it had been approved, Chile would have had one of the world's most progressive constitutions. Chile's right-wing Republican Party, headed by former presidential candidate José Antonio Cast, won 22 of the 50 seats with 35.4% of the vote, while traditional right-wing group Chile Seguero netted 11 seats, or 21.07%. Boric's Governing Unity for Chile Party won 17 seats, 28.59%, with nearly 17% of the votes counted as invalid. The election saw an 85% turnout as voting was mandatory, which is why such a large percentage of ballots were blank or invalid. The new conservative coalition needs three-fifths of the council to approve Chile's governing document changes. After Chile's leftward shift over the past few years, rising crime has helped to tilt politics to the right. In 2019, pensions and health care were the top priorities for Chileans. And just four years later, crime, inflation, immigration, and drug trafficking topped the list. Violent student-led protests erupted in 2019, responding to increased costs of public transportation and prompting broader demands for social change and equality. This led to a referendum vote in which 80% of the voters decided to replace Chile's constitution. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. And as expected, we're hearing from both the left and the right. Our first spin is a right narrative coming from InfoBay. Chile has defeated a failed leftist government and chosen a new path for the nation. Bork's party has brought inflation and crime to unprecedented levels, and Chileans don't trust his party to create a constitution that represents them. Last year, Chileans voted overwhelmingly against the far-left socialist proposal. And this year, they sent a clear message that they want a common-sense constitution that will restore Chile to its greatness. And the left narrative comes from El País. Where did Chile go wrong? After the nation finally escaped the clutches of ruthless dictator Augusto Pinochet, it seemed like it was on the path to valuing human rights and equality. Just last year, it elected one of Latin America's youngest and most progressive leaders. Now it's returning to the far right that it worked so hard to defeat. There are lots of explanatory factors as to why this happened, but it doesn't change the fact that this is a bad day for human rights and democracy in the Latin American nation. You hear about Chile uh, putting in a new constitution, and that seems pretty radical. And I feel like the United States is a pretty young country. But did you know that the U.S. is the second longest running contiguous currently operating government? No, I didn't know that. It's so it's, so it's pretty is, crazy. Only the Vatican is. is longer. So new constitutions are just coming out all the time, I guess. Wow, I had no idea. Russia steps up attacks on Ukraine ahead of Victory Day Parade. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Post, Ukraine Forum, Guardian, 
Vietnam Posts, Newsweek, and Ukrainska Pravda. Russia continued to step up attacks against Ukraine on Monday, launching a wave of drone, missile, and airstrikes into Kyiv and the regions of Kharkiv, Kherson, Mykolaiv, Odessa, and Zaporizhia. Ukraine's military said Russia launched 16 missiles, 61 airstrikes, and 52 rocket salvos, adding that it destroyed all 35 drones that Russia had deployed. In Kyiv, Mayor Vitaly Klitschko said five civilians were injured by falling drone debris. Meanwhile, one civilian was killed and another was reportedly injured in Zaporizhia. Eight civilians were reported injured in Kherson, while a further seven were reported injured in Kharkiv. Two civilians were also reported injured in Donetsk, where fighting has remained constant throughout the conflict. Russia's attacks come a day before it commemorates Victory Day on May 9th, marking the Soviet defeat of Nazi Germany in 1945. The typically triumphant parade in Moscow's Red Square, a centerpiece of Russian President Putin's 23 years in charge, was this year reportedly organized under a cloud of nervousness, even prior to the sighting of drones which crashed into the roof of a Kremlin building last week. Dozens of Russian cities and regions canceled local Victory Day parades, particularly those near the Ukrainian border, for fear of being targeted in attacks. Among them, the border regions of Bryansk and Belgorod, as well as the peninsula of Crimea, annexed by Russia in 2014, all of the areas have come under repeated Ukrainian attacks since the outbreak of the conflict last year. Moscow will hold a scaled-back parade, reportedly involving 129 units of military equipment, compared to last year's 191. 11,000 troops will reportedly take part, down from 12,000 the year before. On Monday, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said the March of the Immortal Regiment, a civilian procession where pictures of family members who participated in the war are carried by participants, was canceled. He cited terrorism concerns. Meanwhile, on Monday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky proposed to the Verkhovna Rada, Ukraine's parliament, that May 8 be established as its day of remembrance and victory over Nazism in World War II. He further suggested May 9th should not be celebrated as Victory Day, but instead as Europe Day. TASS brings us a pro-Russian narrative. Unfortunately, Russia has to deal with a state that condones acts of terrorism. For this reason, Moscow has to take precautionary measures to protect civilians, such as, in this case, canceling the March of the Immortal Regiment. People have instead been urged to celebrate in other ways so that the historic day can be appreciated while security is upheld. The pro-Ukraine narrative comes from Pravda. Ukraine lost 8 million people in the period 1939 to 1945, and it will not have its contribution to the defeat of Nazis erased. Many countries fought in the anti-Hitler coalition, and Ukraine will not allow Russia to appropriate the historical narrative surrounding Hitler's defeat for its own purposes. Kyiv and the West are totally engaged in a fight against evil that echoes the 20th century battle against fascism in Germany. And Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative. They predict that there's a 31% chance that the next Russian leader will disapprove of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, according to the Metaculus prediction community. Yeah, I would have liked to see both sides lay down their arms and kind of celebrate together. You know, you hear about those old like World War One stories where the two sides would like get together between the trenches on a given day. They'd like call a truce and uh-huh. have, like a cookout or something for like holidays or something. Yeah, it's Christmas, so we're not going to fight and we're all going right. to meet up in the middle. Uh-huh. I feel like there was an opportunity for something like that here. Obviously, the sides don't trust each other enough. Yeah. The EU proposes sanctions on Chinese firms for allegedly helping Russia. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the South China Morning Post, Euronews, Reuters, FT, and the Wall Street Journal. 
Diplomatic sources have confirmed the EU on Wednesday will begin discussing sanctions against eight Chinese companies for allegedly aiding the Russian war effort in Ukraine. It would be the first time the 27-member bloc sanctioned China in relation to the conflict. On Monday, a spokesman for the European Commission stated that the draft proposal, which was sent to member states on Friday, focuses on implementing sanctions, their effectiveness, and how to crack down circumvention. Though he provided no further details about the EU's 11th sanctions package against Russia since the outbreak of the war, the Financial Times reported that two mainland China-based and six Hong Kong-based companies were being targeted. Some of these businesses have already been placed under U.S. sanctions, namely the mainland Chinese companies 3HC Semiconductors and King Pai Technology, and the Hong Kong-based Sino Electrics and Sigma Technology. The move may also expand the bloc's list of goods barred from road transit through Russia. According to the sources, it would also blacklist individuals allegedly involved in deporting Ukrainian children and moving cultural goods to Russia from the war zone. Though Europe, particularly Paris and Berlin, have for decades opposed U.S. extraterritorial sanctions, the EU is now showing a willingness to follow the U.S. in sanctioning non-EU companies that supply Russia with goods that it prevents its own companies from exporting. Our first spin for this story is an anti-China narrative coming from Euractiv. Though China claims to be a neutral actor seeking peace between Russia and Ukraine, Beijing and Moscow signed a, quote, no-limits partnership just before the invasion. The West had only promised sanctions should China provide material aid to the Russian military, which is what it seems these companies have done. This proposal didn't come out of the blue, but in response to Beijing's growing vocal and now material support for Moscow. And the pro-China narrative comes from the Global Times. China has never taken a side in the Russia-Ukraine war, and it's best the EU and its member countries understand that. China has looked at this conflict through an objective lens and offered peaceful solutions through negotiation. Therefore, any sanctions placed on Chinese firms by the EU would be an unprovoked move to which China has the right to defend itself equally. There's a nerd narrative for this story as well, coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. It says there's an 8.5% chance that China will get involved in the Russo-Ukrainian conflict by 2024. Well, let's hope it comes to an end before then. Yeah, so yeah the clock's ticking. News coming from India as at least 22 are dead after a tourist boat capsizes. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, Associated Press, Guardian, and NDTV. At least 22 people, including children, lost their lives when a double-decker tourist boat capsized in an estuary in Malapuram in the southern Indian state of Kerala on Sunday night. The boat reportedly capsized due to overcrowding, allegedly carrying about 50 tourists or double its capacity. The death toll is likely to rise as India's Natural Disaster Response Force and the Indian Coast Guard personnel were engaged in rescue and expecting to recover more dead bodies trapped inside the boat after pulling it ashore from the muddy waters of the Porapuja River. The state's sports and fisheries minister, V. Abdurayaman, said most of the victims were children on school holidays, adding that at least four people who were taken to the hospital are in critical condition. Meanwhile, the Malapuran police on Monday registered a case of culpable homicide against the owner of the boat, who has reportedly gone missing and are investigating whether the boat had a proper permit. While the Kerala government has announced compensation to the families of the victims, Prime Minister Narendra Modi released 200,000 rupees, or about $2,500, from the Prime Minister's National Relief Fund to the next of kin of each of the deceased. Thanks for the update on that tragic story, Eric. We have a Narrative A from the New York Times. 
Though Kerala is known for its beaches and backwaters and is a popular tourist destination for Indians and foreigners alike, its boats are often overcrowded, poorly maintained, and lack safety equipment. Since the boat service in Malappuram had started only a few months ago as part of a state government initiative, officials must be held accountable for lax regulations and implementation of safety rules. Narrative B comes from NDTV. Apart from the state government, the onus of the disaster lies on the boat owner as the boat allegedly did not have a safety certificate, did not have enough life jackets, and was not permitted to operate that late in the day. If the ferry owners continue to blatantly break security and safety rules, such tragedies will, unfortunately, continue to reoccur. Our final story, over 100 wildfires in Canada displace thousands. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the star, Earth.org, The New York Post, The Guardian, CBC, and DW. As of Saturday morning, at least 103 wildfires were burning across the province of Alberta, Canada, displacing thousands of residents and livestock. According to the Alberta Management Agency, 37 of the wildfires are burning out of control. In response, authorities have declared a state of emergency, and firefighters from British Columbia, Quebec, and Ontario have been deployed to support firefighting operations. As crews battle the wildfires, nearly 30,000 residents face evacuation orders across western Canada. Increasingly warm and dry weather is blamed for the fires, with Alberta Premier Danielle Smith calling the situation an unprecedented crisis. While assuring Albertans that the province has the resources to respond, Smith said, Much of Alberta has been experiencing a hot, dry spring, and with so much kindling, all it takes is a few sparks to ignite some truly frightening wildfires. Alberta has experienced 348 wildfires this year, engulfing more than 25,000 acres. Christy Tucker, an information unit manager for Alberta Wildfire, said this year's wildfire threat is significantly higher than past years. And, quote, it's going to get hotter, it's going to get windier, and we are expecting some extreme wildfire behavior. On Sunday, in a joint statement, the Alberta Emergency Management Agency and Alberta Wildfire said that changing weather conditions like scattered rain moving through the province helped firefighters control the blazes. The increasing wildfire danger is just one of many hazards facing Canadians. In addition to the warming trend sparking wildfires, the extreme heat and increased rainfall have also sped up the melting of the winter snowpack, resulting in recent major flooding. Thank you, Scott, for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from the official website of the Government of Canada. The Canadian government is committed to keeping people safe as the country faces an increased wildfire threat due to the changing climate. Even with dedicated and sufficient resources, wildfires will continue to impact communities. This dedication to addressing the threats of climate change is visible in the 2022 commitment of $516 million across the country for fire services training, hiring, equipment purchases for First Nations, and a satellite-based wildfire monitoring system. And the Global News of Canada brings us the establishment critical narrative. Hundreds of millions of dollars are being squandered by the Canadian government completing ill-advised and inadequate fire mitigation measures. The government must immediately put policies and practices into place that combine prescribed fire, indigenous traditional know-how and technique, and sustainable forest land harvesting to be successful at beating back climate change impacts on wildfires. A metaculous prediction community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 45% chance that wildfires will destroy a total exceeding 10 millihectare of global tree cover in any year by the end of the year 2030. 
Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, May 9th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.